Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, welcome to the Humble Skeptic Podcast. My guest for this episode has written a fascinating book titled The Jewish Gospels, The Story of the Jewish Christ. Dr. Daniel Boyarin is professor of Talmudic culture at UC Berkeley, and he argues that many Jews before the time of Jesus were expecting a Messiah who would be both human and divine, and that this view is reflected not only in numerous Old Testament passages, but also in a variety of other Jewish texts that were written before the rise of Christianity. At the opening of his book, he writes that there was a time in which Jews and Christians were much more mixed up with each other than they are now, when there were many Jews who believed in something quite like the Father and the Son, and even something quite like the incarnation of the Son in the Messiah. The argument is fairly straightforward based on a significant number of Jewish texts from the first century and a little bit earlier, I tried to show that among Jews, the idea of the Messiah as a kind of divine human was not at all uncommon. Therefore, the very idea of the Messiah as a divine figure that somehow comes to earth in the form of a human being um, fits these Jewish patterns very well. So the shock or the, the claim of the early Jesus movement was not on the theological front, whether there could be possibly a father and a son. Uh, I think that was quite acceptable to many, if not most Jews, or even whether there could be a divine human combination, as it were. But the argument was whether Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the one that they were all expecting. Um, you know, a lot of times Christian friends ask me, why didn't the Jews believe in Jesus Christ? I said, well, who do you think did believe in him? The Chinese? The Navajo? Obviously, the people who accepted him were Jews. And why didn't all the Jews accept him or believe him? Well, 
if you know Jews, you know it's impossible to imagine all the Jews agreeing on anything at any time. So I think this perspective restores the early Jesus movement to its deep and most important context within the Jewish world. Yeah, you write that uh, many Israelites at the time of Jesus were expecting a Messiah who would be divine and come to the earth in human form, and thus the basic underlying thoughts from which both the Trinity and the Incarnation grew are there in the very world into which Jesus was born and into which he was first written about in the Gospels of Mark and John. I want to pick your brain about that last line, first written in Mark and John, because most people argue that Mark is the earliest gospel and that John is the latest, and therefore it's the most idealized, the most theological, perhaps even the most Greek. It seems like you don't agree with that way of thinking about the fourth gospel. I certainly don't. You're right. I am not impressed with arguments that make John Greek or Platonic or philosophical or anything of that sort. I don't know chronologically exactly how it fits in with the synoptics. But what I'm convinced of is that it is not based on the synoptics. So in that sense, it is an original tradition. John is itself an independent foundational text. So that's why I talk about Mark and John as being both foundational. You wrote an essay that was published in the Jewish Annotated New Testament titled Logos, a Jewish Word. And by Logos there, of course, you're referring to the opening words of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and that word in Greek is Logos. And mysteriously, that word of God is somehow also God there in the opening prologue. And so many people have argued that the author of this text is borrowing concepts from Platonic philosophy, perhaps as an apologetic to a Greek audience. But you argue, no, that word is actually a Jewish concept. Can you go into that a little? Yeah. There's close connection between the Greek word logos and the Aramaic word memra, which means speech or word, and which is predicated of God within Jewish Aramaic translations of the Torah and of the Bible itself. So I don't need to predicate this Greek term logos on anything other than a translation of the Aramaic word memra, since it means virtually the same thing. Secondly, I try to show the best way to understand the prologue to John, not as a philosophical or theological statement, but as an actual interpretation of the first verses of Genesis. I suggest that it can be retroverted back into Hebrew or Aramaic, and it will make perfectly good sense as part of that Jewish world. What's your explanation as to how this concept of the word, which, as you say in Aramaic, is the memra, why do you think that began to be applied to God? Do you think, for example, that it's possible to see this as an ancient Jewish way of explaining texts such as you find in Exodus 3, where you have this mysterious character known as the angel of the Lord, or the messenger of Yahweh, who also speaks and acts as Yahweh? Yeah, I think that's a very, very significant piece of where the tradition comes from. As, as far back as we can go in what you call the Old Testament and I call the Bible, we find this slippage between the named God and an angel. And within the same narrative, sometimes called the angel of the Lord and sometimes called the Lord. So it does seem to be part of very, very ancient tradition. 
So do you believe that this is why we find in Aramaic translations of the Torah various places in which this concept of the word appears even as a kind of second divine figure? For example, there's a place in which Yahweh himself says, um, my word will be for you a redeeming God. Yeah, yeah, that, that and, and, you know, other streams go into that tradition also. Generally, the idea of the word as that which affects creation uh and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. So it is the saying, the word that God says that produces the light. But in a lot of those paraphrases, the word isn't conceived of as divine speech. It's actually the divine speech is speaking. Well, the divine speech comes to be understood as a divine figure in its own right. Do you think that this was a vibrant stream among all the ancient forms of Judaism before the time of Jesus, this concept of God that we couldn't exactly equate with Trinitarian Christianity, but which I think at one point in your book you refer to as a kind of binitarianism? Certainly in the various modes of ancient Jewish literature that we have, that idea seems to be present in many of them. Certainly in the Enoch books, the Testament of Abraham, right, where we have the little Jehovah explicitly named as such. You end up concluding that we can no longer think of Jesus as some kind of ethical religious teacher who was later promoted to divinity under the influence of alien Greek notions with his so-called original message being distorted and lost. The idea of Jesus as a divine human messiah goes back to the very beginning of the Christian movement, to Jesus himself, and even before that. Can you go into that a little more? Well, there's been a certain kind of so-called liberal Protestant theology that has wanted since the 19th century to reconstruct the very kind of rationalistic image of who Jesus was, right? Itinerant preacher, provocative teacher. Um, I preached a couple of times at the um, Vancouver School of Theology when I was teaching there in the summer, and they kept pushing at me these sort of modern liberal hymns in which Jesus is called exactly that, itinerant preacher, provocative teacher. And I always wanted to sing things like, you know, were you there when they crucified my Lord or the old rugged cross, which appalled them. Uh, My point being that that liberal tradition insists that Jesus was a great teacher, perhaps even a prophet, but argues that the accretion of divinity and second personhood and incarnation, etc., is under the impact of Greek ideas later than the the first century at any rate. And I suggest that actually what we call today high Christology, namely the notion of Jesus as divine human, was there from the very beginning. And it was there from the very beginning precisely because it answered to a major uh, spiritual tendency within the Jewish spirituality of the day. So you don't see Jesus as this sort of uh, revolutionary character who came to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony? No. (laughs) No. I see him from his own perspective as the redeemer that the Jews were expecting who would come and redeem the Jews and, and the world, but not through some sort of reform movement. You talk in your book about the fact that modern Bible readers tend to think of the phrase, Son of God, as a reference to Christ's divinity, whereas Son of Man points to his humanity. But you say that almost the exact opposite was the case. Can you explain that point for our listeners? Yes. We see very clearly in the Psalms and uh, some of the prophetic texts 
that the king of Israel was called the son of God. There are many examples. Now, the Messiah as son of God means the restoration of the once and future true kingship, right? So when, when the Messiah is referred to as son of God, that indicates that he is the true king of Israel. Son of man, on the other hand, um, many, if not most scholars agree, comes from Daniel 7, where Daniel sees a vision. And in his vision, he sees two clearly divine figures. One, Atik Yomin, that is one ancient of days. And another one, like unto a son of man. Now, son of man in Aramaic there just means a human being. That's true. But when you see a divine figure like unto a son of man, that means his appearance is as a young human. But he's clearly a divine figure there because he comes riding on the clouds. And his kingdom is eternal. And his kingdom is eternal, right? So therefore, I argue paradoxically that son of God refers to the human aspect, the king, because even the even the ordinary kings of Israel were called son of God. Do you think this is what Psalm 2 is getting at when we see Yahweh declaring there in the middle of that psalm, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You are my son, he says. Today I have begotten you. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's it. An enthronement psalm. And to summarize your view of Daniel 7, you say this son of man character there in Daniel 7 is divine, but he's in human form. He may very well be portrayed as a younger appearing divinity than the Ancient of Days. He will be enthroned on high. He's given power and dominion. All these things you say are characteristics of Jesus as he's appearing in the Gospels. Right, right. So then you write that the Messiah Christ existed as a Jewish idea long before the baby Jesus was born. This idea of a second God as viceroy to God the Father is one of the oldest theological ideas in Israel. Exactly. Are you alone in this perspective, or are there other scholars out there putting forward similar ideas? Well, I don't know exactly who's putting it forward, but there are certainly people who have accepted the argument that I made there. But it's not such a wild idea. Do you think that there is a new appreciation for the Jewishness of both Jesus and the New Testament as a whole in modern New Testament scholarship? Absolutely. Absolutely. Not universal, of course. I mean, we still get some pretty sharply anti-Judaic formulations from some very prominent New Testament scholars whose names I will not mention, but there's a strong movement within uh, New Testament scholarship to pay close attention to the deep Jewishness of, of the Gospels and of Paul as well. Can you tell us how has this uh, Daniel 7 passage traditionally been interpreted by Jewish exegetes over the centuries? For example, how did the rabbis discuss this passage throughout the Talmud? For the most part, uh, it was understood as a, a representation of Israel itself. Was there a minority position there that uh, saw this as presenting two different divinities? Well, they wouldn't have put it in those terms, but something like that. Yes, there were. But there were explicit arguments as early as the fourth century about Daniel 7 between Christians and Jews. You talk about the famous suffering servant passage of Isaiah 53 
And you interact with a common Jewish interpretation that says it refers allegorically to the suffering of Israel herself. But you say that there's also another way to look at that passage. Right. And that it doesn't divide along Christian versus Jewish lines, right? That there are ancient and even medieval Jews who also saw that as reference to the suffering Messiah. It's not Jews on one side, Christians on the other side. You know, in some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are some allusions to this passage here from Isaiah 53. One text in particular refers to a king that will sit on David's throne who says, quote, There is none comparable to me in my glory. No one besides me shall be exalted, for I have dwelt on high in the heavens. I am reckoned with the divine beings, and my abode is in the holy congregation. But then this same text goes on to say, Who is considered as contemptible as I am, and who has been despised like me? Who has been rejected by men like me? Who has borne troubles like me? Clear references, I think, there to both Isaiah 52 and 53. So you have like a divine figure who's also being rejected and bearing human troubles. Right. So, And that seems to be you know, a pre-Christian Jewish idea there in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Exactly. That's exactly my point, that it's, it's sometimes taken as if this is an absolute marker of the difference between Jews and Christians, and it just isn't. In your book, you criticize the popular idea that Jesus is just one of those legendary figures like the dying and rising gods from ancient mythology. You write that this idea, which is so typical of many, can have no purchase because it totally ignores the Jewish history of the divine supernatural redeemer. What's the point you're trying to make there? Oh, that um, there was a tradition in scholarship called the history of religions tradition, which simply tried to place the whole story of the incarnation, the, um, the crucifixion and the resurrection into the context of a an ancient Near Eastern or even Iranian tradition of dying and rising God, Adonis, etc. Osiris. Adonis, Osiris, Dumuz, Dumuzi. And I just find that that uh, rather misses the point of the deep embedding of the Jesus narrative within Jewish traditions of the expected Messiah. And and part of the project of that history of religions school, and especially Bultmann, for whom I have very little sympathy, was to make Christianity as different as possible from what they imagined Judaism to be, right? The whole project was to distance. They, they preferred to make Christianity into some sort of Iranian cult. Partly because they had a very strong distaste for Judaism. Exactly. So. You know, they even developed a principle among New Testament scholars that when looking through the Gospels and trying to figure out what are the genuine words of Jesus, anything that is dissimilar to what they consider to be the Judaism of the day, that's what is the genuine words of Jesus. Yeah. And somehow they discovered that all of Jesus's words were dissimilar to Judaism, frequently to just what they were imagining Judaism to be. So why does understanding that Jewish background to the concept of both the divinity of the Messiah and his, you know, the fact that he would redeem Israel, why does that help us to sort of push back on this claim of that Jesus is just one of these legendary dying and rising gods? Because it's a, it's a whole different religious milieu. The Jewish narrative of a second divine figure 
of one sort or another, Nicene or not, who becomes um, in some form humanized, right, but still remains divine and comes and redeems the world, uh, just has very little to do with those sort of vegetation deities, right? After all, the dying and rising God is a kind of uh, vegetation God, right? You know, it's like asparagus that dies and comes back. And they also come back in the netherworld. They never sort of embody a resuscitated corpse and start walking around Egypt somewhere. You know, I don't actually know that. That may very well be the case. Yeah. So you conclude your book by saying that the very moments that we take to be the most characteristically Christian, as opposed to Jewish, the notion of a dual Godhead with a father and a son, the notion of a redeemer who himself will be both God and man, or the notion that this redeemer would suffer and die as a part of the salvation process, at least some of these ideas, you say, have deep roots in the Hebrew Bible. Exactly. Exactly. Sometimes when I want to be a little provocative, I refer to the text of the New Testament as evidence for a very conservative version of Judaic belief that was reformed or changed during the rabbinic period by the rabbis. Folks, thanks for joining me this week on the Humble Skeptic Podcast. If you'd like to read further on today's topic, you can find a number of book and article recommendations in the show notes, which you can find at humbleskeptic.com. If you'd like to make a tax-deductible gift before the year is over to help support this podcast, you can find information about that option by clicking on the Donate tab at the top of our website, again, humbleskeptic.com. On a program note, I'll be taking a couple weeks off for the holidays, so the next episode won't drop until the second Tuesday of the new year. So until then, Merry Christmas, and I'll look forward to being with you again next time as we discuss the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Mm -hmm.